and welcome to episode 267 of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. We also happen to be devoted to playing cool instrumental surf music like this song here. It's called The Robber. It's from the band Televisionaries. It's on their album, Televisionaries 2, and I found them at televisionaries.bandcamp.com. Now, they're based out of New York, and if you're in the Albany, New York area, you can catch their show happening this Friday the 13th at The Low Beat, along with the band's Lone Ranger, Jittery Jack, and the Kimono Dragons. Or you can just stay tuned to the end of this episode, because you're going to get to hear this song in its entirety. I am your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook, and I am wearing a luchador mask. Sort of. Okay, not really. Well, you know what? Inside my heart, I'm always wearing a luchador mask because I love luchador monster movies. And originally, this month was going to be nothing but Mexican wrestler monster films. Things changed a little bit. I'll get into that later on in this episode. But this episode, we are covering a monster movie Mexican wrestler style. I'm talking about the 1972 film Robbery of the Mummies of Guanajuato, starring my man, Mil Moscris, a couple of other luchadors, and some mummies. And you know what? It's just a fun movie. And I had a fun conversation with one of my favorite writers of New Pulp. I'm talking about Frank Schildener. He's been on the show before. His novel, The Quest of Frankenstein, was on the Monster Kid Radio gift guide last year. He's got some new material out. He's going to come here where he's going to talk about the movie, Robbery of the Mummies of Guanajuato. He and I are going to stumble through some of the Spanish names and pronunciations of the people involved in the film, as well as the original title of the movie. He's going to tell us about some of his upcoming projects, and we're just going to have a really good time. I had so much fun talking with Frank. You know, the conversation, it does eventually get to the film. We do talk a lot about his background with Mil Moscaris, how he discovered him, what he saw on television that drew him to this style of filmmaking and film and storytelling. You know, it's just a good time. I hope people understand that we do have a lot of love for these films. We do criticize a few things here and there, but you know what? It's all in good fun. And if you listen between the lines, you're going to hear us laughing and having a blast the entire time. We also have some feedback in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. You know what? I'd like to go over one piece of feedback now. This is actually something that was left on the Monster Kid Radio Facebook page. Yeah, we have a Facebook page, ladies and gentlemen. If you are a Facebook user, please consider looking us up on Facebook and giving us a like. And of course, you can always leave comments for us over there like Eduardo did about episode 265 in which Stephen D. Sullivan and I reviewed the ballot for this year's Monster Rally Retro Awards. We'll talk a little bit more about the awards later in the show. Let's get to Eduardo's comments. He corrected us and he had every right to. Here's what he said. He wanted to point out an inaccuracy in the podcast about Bela Lugosi's 1951 Dracula stage revival in England, during which he filmed the movie Vampire Over London soon after. Now, Vampire Over London did appear on the ballot for the Rally Awards. That's why it came up. Now, he does provide a quote from the website Vampire Over London, the Bela Lugosi blog. You can find that at BelaDraculaLugosi.wordpress.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Here's the excerpt 
For eight months in 1951, Bela Lugosi toured the length and breadth of Britain in a stage revival of Dracula. With horror films out of fashion and his career in terminal decline, the 68-year-old actor had been lured across the Atlantic by the promise of a run in the West End, which he hoped would provide the comeback that he hoped for. Unfortunately, the West End did not beckon. Physically exhausted by the grueling schedule, a bitterly disappointed Lugosi quit the tour. After resting and recuperating his strength, he made the film Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, or My Son the Vampire, Vampire Over London, and returned to America. Now, as the years passed by, the facts were forgotten, and a myth grew around Lugosi's time in Britain. According to what became an oft-repeated story, he found himself in a threadbare production with a supporting cast of amateurs who couldn't remember their lines. After a disastrous opening, the tour quickly folded, leaving an unpaid Lugosi and his wife stranded in Britain. To pay their passage back home, he accepted a hurriedly arranged role in a horror comedy. For 50 years, the myth was accepted as fact, but just as a casual study of the trail of evidence left behind by Lugosi and the tour made it obvious that a very different story was waiting to be told. In 2000, after 10 years of research, authors Frank J. Delostrito and Andy Brooks were finally able to set the record straight with the publication of Vampire Over London, Bela Lugosi in Britain. The critically acclaimed biography of Lugosi, in addition to the 1951 tour and Mother Riley Meets the Vampire, their exhaustive research unearthed new facts about Lugosi's other British work, like the movies Mystery of the Mary Celeste, Dark Eyes of London, and the elusive Lock Up Your Daughters, the existence of which is still hotly debated. All right. Eduardo's right. And I kind of sort of knew this, you know, unfortunately, sometimes I just get on a roll and I start repeating things in my brain that I've long believed. Like when we were kids and we all thought that there were two versions of King Kong versus Godzilla, the American version where King Kong won and the Japanese where Godzilla won. I knew that Lugosi really didn't wash out in Britain and had to take this movie role. Partly because I've read Vampire Over London, Bela Lugosi in Britain. I've actually met Frank J. Delostrito at a Monster Bash a few years ago. He appeared on this show, and I keep trying to find a reason to invite him back on. You know what? Maybe we just need to talk about Bela Lugosi. How hard can that be? So, Eduardo, thank you for pointing that out. And listeners, again, BelaDraculaLugosi.wordpress.com is where you're going to find a link to this blog with all of this information. Go check it out. Tell them that Eduardo and Monster Kid Radio sent you. I do have a voicemail, but I'm going to play it later on in the show. I want to hold off because I'm eager to tag Frank into the ring and talk about robbery of the mummies of Guanajuato. And you know what? We're just going to do that right after this. Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yes. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks Shem- like melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf, 
How is the Devil? Vengeance of the Zombies. Horror Rises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. In the 18th century in Central Europe, a black terror swept across the face of the land. The curse of vampirism, which had been a half-forgotten memory for hundreds of years, returned with a fury that struck unholy fear into the hearts of every man, woman, and child. One man dared to make a stand against this evil epidemic. One man dared to hurl a challenge of cold steel against the terror of the undead. He was Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. It is commonly supposed that a vampire attacks in only one way, by biting the neck and draining the victim of blood. The girls you spoke of, they were not drained of blood, but of youth, of life itself. You see? He's been bitten on the mouth. God's sake, I survived the vampire's bite. He is not the man you are. I'm doomed. My soul, a never-ending torment. Life will be yours. Yours. Her youth will pulse through your veins, my darling. Replenishing. Restoring. Take her. At your service, sir. To the death. my lord this is god's blade forged for your black heart Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, one of my favorite authors, somebody I love chatting about Mexican wrestler movies with, Frank Schildener. Welcome back to Monster Kid Radio, sir. Thanks, Derek. How have you been? I've been good, although I'm a little bummed right now because I just finished reading The Iron Skull by you, and now I don't know what to read next. Well, i got more coming. Uh, We will will discuss. Uh, I have some more coming out soon, so don't worry. And plus, I'm working on some new stuff, so... It never stops. Excellent. Never stops. <laughs> that, that's what I love to hear from the people that I love to read. So there's more coming. It's like, yes. Thank you. Much more coming. Much, much more. And, and we'll talk about the Iron Skull and, and your upcoming writing projects you know, here towards the end of the show. Give people a, a chance to, to see what's coming out from the pen of Frank Schildener. After we talk about this movie, after we play a round of the Classic Five, we have never done that with you, sir. No, you never have. It's, this is going to be fun. So I'm shuffling my deck of cards, my questions right now. Alrighty. Don't know if listeners can hear that or not. I heard it. So oh, okay. So, so it's, it's real. <laughs> it's real. 
Okay. The Classic Five, for listeners who are just now joining us who've never heard it before, I've got a deck of cards with a number of questions pertaining to classic monster movies. This or that, which one's better, which one's worse, what would you like to see style questions? Don't have to think too hard about them, just kind of a rapid fire thing. (laughs) All right, here we go. Card number one. I was a teenage werewolf or I was a teenage Frankenstein? I was a teenage werewolf. Put the girls alone. Possessed. Yvonne Lyon, appealing as the girl who loves him. Whit Bissell, unforgettable as the scientist maddened by the mystery of the werewolf. And Tony Marshall, a tough, friendly enemy. These are the official pictures? Yes, Chief. Slash on either side of the throat. You got any theories? Fangs. He was killed, but... Panic penetrates every home when this strange unknown killer hits town, taking hold of the teenage crowd, coloring their practical jokes with hysterical humor that'll make you fall flat on your face with horror. Remember how wonderful it was when you sprang and suddenly dug in with your fangs, a soft throat, a gush of warm blood? No! No! Nothing you've ever seen has such blood-chilling savagery. Nothing you've ever conceived packs such a spine-tingling jolt. This high school boy, a teenage werewolf. A constant threat of claw-ripping attack to everyone, to the brave and the beautiful. Well, even with that musical number? Oh, gosh, you know how I am about those musical numbers. That musical number cracks me up for several reasons. First, it doesn't even fit the movie in slight. No. But also, if you watch it, it is, it's badly synced, so nothing is coming out when they're supposed to at the same time. Film Facts Magazine actually had an interview with the woman in that scene, uh, the woman who was singing, name escapes me. And she actually said she was good friends with the guy playing her boyfriend and doing that singing scene, but it was so goofy even to her, and she was a singer-actress, so it was kind of funny stuff. But yeah, (laughs) no, Werewolf over Frankenstein. Ooh, here's a good one. Christopher Lee or Bela Lugosi? Christopher Lee. I I love Bela. I love, love, love Bela. I can never speak ill of the man, but Christopher Lee's sheer volume of awesome kind of overwhelms uh, Devil Rides Out and all that stuff. Rex, do you believe in evil? That's an idea. Do you believe in the power of darkness? That's a superstition. Now, there you were wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why? On one night of one year, should these people live in mortal fear?
out of Mendes. The devil himself. Christopher Lee as Derisha, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. My God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex! Eyes. Eyes. Once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. The Devil's Bride, from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's The Devil Rides Out, fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. On your feet quickly! Back to back! Join hands! You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. If we once catch sight of his face. Uh, it's tough. Believe me, it's tough. But Bela, I think, was at his height in the Frankenstein movies. Uh, not when he played the character, when he was Igor. And um, in The Black Cat with Boris Karloff, which mm, yes. is one of, the best, one of the best horror movies ever made, period. I mean, but for sure, terror. I was always much, much more afraid of Christopher Lee. There was something imposing, even when he wasn't showing the teeth. <laughs> Uh, card number three. Ooh. Klaatu or Gort? Gort. Always of Gort. We interrupt this program to give you a bulletin just received from one of our naval units at sea. A large object traveling at supersonic speed is headed over the North Atlantic toward the east coast of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. to give you these facts. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned-out cinder. But he's a robot. Without you, what could he do? There's no limit to what he could do. He could destroy the earth. All vehicles close in. Let's go. Always, always want a Gort actually action figure one of these days myself. I love Gort. 
And I honestly didn't care if they shot Glock too. I'm terrible that way. When I saw the movie, I was like, ah, shoot him. Let's see more of the robot. That's what, you know, evil kid. <laughs> All right, card number four. Horror hosts, regarding horror hosts, do you prefer them to interact with the film or just show the movie? You know, I can, I can give and take that both. I mean, I've seen where it becomes an annoying thing, but then again, I've seen it where it works. So it's like, I'm kind of a both minds. It, as long as you're not doing it too often, it's great. If you're doing it, you know, it becomes more of an ego thing and then sit down and let us watch the movie, man. So I'm both really, it just, you know, a little of both. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at too. So, all right. Final question. What classic monster movie would you like to see turned into a theme park attraction? A theme park attraction. Wow, that one came out of left field. The Mummy, uh, but the Boris Karloff version. Death. Eternal punishment. For anyone who opens this casket. mummy is it dead or alive human or inhuman you'll know you'll see you'll feel the awful creeping crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips there's nothing on earth like the mummy you will not remember what i show you now and yet i shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He's going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. The Boris Karloff mummy version, just because, first thing, it was as accurate as you were going to get back then. And also, there's just something so overwhelmingly cool about that world and that movie it didn't need to be part of the whole universal series it was a world unto itself and imhotep was so terrifying and evil and just the best character in horror in my opinion ever so yeah the mummy would be my choice uh, though i did have a couple of thoughts of things like psycho and all that but that was that might get a little hard to do <laughs> well, they already have the house set up at the Universal lot, so you could just maybe maybe move into Psycho a little easier, right? Yeah, I actually, um, when I was about 14, my parents took me and my brother out to Hawaii and then California where I have relatives, and my relatives took me to there, and we actually got to see the Psycho place as well as a whole bunch of those other houses. What's really funny is when you see something like the Munster's house, but it was painted white. So it was like, what is going on here? It didn't work for me. But the Psycho House and the Bates Motel were there. You just weren't allowed to approach it. And uh, that really aggravated me. I got actually a little aggravated. And I was all, <laughs> uh, you know, I was a 14-year-old suburban brat. I wanted things the way I wanted them. <laughs> and I never got away with anything. So it actually is the reason I'm probably a human being that's not in prison. So I guess it was a good thing, too. <laughs> 
All right, man. Well, thanks for playing the classic five with us, man. That was a lot of fun. You know, I love these questions that just kind of come out of left field, like you said. And I think actually, uh, my frequent co-host Scott Morris is the one who came up with the theme park question. So thanks to Scott for, for that. And, uh, man, that's always fun to think about. I would love to run around a lot of the hammer sets and turn that into an attraction of some sort. I don't know how you do it, but. Well, I'd first start by seeing if you could get the girls, but, uh, you know, <laughs> and I appreciate that, but let's start with the fact that in hammer horror, even the peasant girls were insanely beautiful. <laughs> you know, the, I, I always remember the classic opening of Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, where they show the peasant girl getting a very nice little bracelet from her father that was her uh, her mother's, and the girl and her sister are like supermodels, you know, and they're living in this little one-room shack kind of thing with a brother who has a, a crutch and a limp, and she goes off to... She wants to show it to her friend and gets the life sucked out of her. But her friend is just as gorgeous. And it's like, you know, what part of England produced these peasants that are like, uh, that look like they should be on the cover of Maxim magazine? (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, if you're going to do Hammer, you got to start with the fact that the girls were all gorgeous, with one girl always being the most gorgeous, you know, the Carolyn Monroe Ingrid Pitt. But, uh, you know, that would cause a lot of divorces, too. I think mine would cause <laughs> that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, you know, I think of these things. Uh, unfortunately, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, then. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> you can't go anywhere from there. Nope. It's like I pretty much ended that subject because the only person that would be in support of that would be divorce lawyers. Hey, there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, since Frank just dropped the mic on the Classic Five, we'll go ahead and move on. Um, <laughs> so the movie that we're going to talk about, you know, when I decided to do Lucha de Mayo here on Monster Kid Radio, Frank was one of the first people that I thought of. I had to have him on the show because every time I have you on the show, either in the recording that makes it to the episode or before or after we are done recording, we always end up talking about Mil Mascaras. We always end up talking Luchador, and I always invoke Mil Mascaras every time. I don't know if it's a fault on my part or a good thing. I, I have to decide. Hey, around here, it's a good thing. That's true. That's around true. here, it's a good thing. Because Mil Mascaras, we were talking before we started recording. Even though, you know, Santos the big dog, you know, Santos the big name, and Blue Demon, you know, he's considered, I guess, number two. Mil Mascaras is oftentimes viewed as the third banana, but... I'm always drawn to these characters, whether it's in a film or a comic book or a novel series that aren't supposed to be the number one guy, you know, Superman, whatever, Batman. All right. He's a little bit more cool, you know, and I feel the same way about Mil Mascaras, even though he didn't do as many films and he isn't as well known as Santo or Blue Demon. He's kind of my guy. Yeah, me too. And he's actually kind of the reason I watched wrestling for many years. I got to actually do a kind of trip back in time. So all of our listeners, you got to choose your own way, whether you're looking into the pool in the at Imhoteps or the wavy lines that used to be on the 70s TV shows or whatever. <laughs> take, take, you know, do the, the, the star wipe. Uh, if you need to get into the DeLorean, do it now. So we're going to hit back into the ancient times of the 1970s. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, Back in the 70s, I lived in, I, I, where I live now and lived then, it 
was in the New York, New Jersey area. We were extraordinarily gifted with television in the sense that we had more options than pretty much anywhere in the nation, so I gathered. Two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, and 13 were all active stations that you could get with the rabbit ears because that's all they had. There were no cable TV. Videotape was never a concept in the suburbs uh, or anything like that. And... 247 were CBS, NBC, and ABC, respectively. 5, 9, 11 were independent stations, and 13 were PBS. Now, on evenings, a lot of these stations would put on their uh, standard content, and that's not always good for a monster kid. You know, the, sure. they, they, like 9 and 11, for example, the entire summer were almost a waste because they would put on the Mets and the Yankees, respectively. So it's like, okay, I, I, I want to watch uh, Dracula and you've got guys hitting baseballs. Not working for me. <laughs> uh, five was okay during the day, you know, on weekends because they would show movies. That's where I saw a lot of the old Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies for many, many years. But in the evening at nine o'clock, it turned over to the Merle Griffin show, which to a monster kid is absolutely unwatchable. Later in life, I probably would have enjoyed it, but no, not a chance. Um, <laughs> and 13 was PBS, which is as hit and miss as you're possibly going to get. So you would have to venture into the UHF dials. And that was as hit and miss as life ever could possibly be because it was you're working on these tiny little aerials, most of which were broken, and you're moving them around and hoping you can get something. And some days, you know, you get Maryland or Philadelphia or something, and you could end up watching a movie or a TV show that you like, or you get nothing. And there were only three stations you always could get. Now, the first one was 69. 69 would show grade Z movies that were even unwatchable from my standards. And then they'd show things like Green Acres. But I did get to see things like The Lone Ranger and Flash Gordon. So it was okay. But it was pretty hit or miss. 41 47 were the other two you always got, but they were Spanish stations. And so being a typical suburban New Jersey, New York kid, I didn't speak Spanish. So I just breezed by it. But one time I'm going by it and I see a guy in a mask slamming another guy onto, into a mat. And even for me, it's like, okay, this is something different because I never really saw wrestling too much. And the voiceover was in Spanish, but I was able to ignore that pretty well. And I'm watching these guys do this stuff. And I found out because the ring announcers were from the Texas, Mexico area, you get like a combination of, of Spanish and English. So I found out that, Wrestling, or Lucha Libre, as they would call it, was on almost like every other night. So I'm watching this, and it's like, right, this is interesting. I, it's a good station. And then all of a sudden, they call out the name Mil Mascaras, Man of a Thousand Masks, and the crowd goes insane. And then out comes this really well-built, muscular guy, and he vaults over the top rope. And he reaches to his mask and he pulls it off and there's another mask underneath. And I was hooked. And <laughs> then, you know, I'm watching it over the course. I'm looking into the paper and seeing Lucha Libre. I understand two words in Spanish now. And I'm looking for it and I'm looking for it. I find it on different days. And usually when the commercials were on, they were typical commercials for any other area. So... Like all kids, I was able to ignore it. But one time they put on a commercial and they had 
Santo. I knew that name. I'd even seen him once or twice. And they had him fighting Dracula. And this was like, what is going on here? And it was, I figured out just from seeing what the, the, that was coming on afterwards. And it was Santo and the Blue Demon fighting Dracula and the Wolfman. And I didn't understand a word of it, but it didn't matter. It was the coolest thing I ever saw. So, of course, I would keep looking for these things. And then I saw a Mil Mascaras movie. And it's like the guy who is fighting in the ring every week, the guy who I thought was the coolest, most aerial guy of them all, he's fighting monsters with the blue demon. So I became a fan. That would do it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it was it. like, okay, I'm as hooked as I'm hooked going to be. And I would talk about this to friends, and most of them were like, Wrestlers don't fight, don't fight Dracula. It's like, yes, they did. I saw Santo fighting Dracula and Frankenstein. I saw Mil Mascaras riding a motorcycle and like being the number two guy to the Blue Demon. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's like, this is a whole cool world. Well, you fast forward a year or two and West Orange, New Jersey, where I was grew up, was hosting a wrestling show. And guess who was one of the stars? Mil Mascaras. Oh man, I just I can imagine just crawling out of your skin with excitement. It's like ah, <laughs> yes, because of course, being a kid, it's like I'm. I got these fantasies in my mind. That's like he's fighting, you know, demons or monsters or secret agents during the day, and at night he's doing his wrestling matches, like happened in every of these movies. And of course, my father was a very indulgent. He's like, okay, Frank, just keep watching. You know, it's like, you know, he just kept blowing it all. Like, okay, cool. You know, I'm glad you like it. Go keep watching. And I got to see all of these great <laughs> classic things without understanding too much of what the heck was going on. I only wish I spoke Spanish, but I just never had the, the knack for it. But it made me a lifelong fan of the genre. When videotape came out, I started buying a couple here and there. Usually they were in Spanish, so I didn't understand a lot. I'd read summaries like in Monster magazines. And Sinister Cinema put out a couple of a guy named Neutron. And Neutron had one of the funniest openings because it had the bad guy who also wore a mask with a mini Estrella wrestler, which is the midget wrestlers, but I don't like to use that word because it's considered very offensive. The mini Estrella, but he's showing him his plans, but he's holding the guy's hand as he walks him to each of like the pictures he's showing him. And it was like the weirdest image. It's like, this is the bad evil guy, but he's holding the hand of his assistant. <laughs> who also wore a mask, by the way. Of course. And yeah, so I became a lifelong fan, and Mil Mascaras became the one I liked best because I got to see him the most. Uh, his movies aren't as good. He really did very better when he was like an assistant character to the Blue Demon. But the thing I love about his character is he is created as a pulp hero. The character was created. His history was stolen directly from one of the greatest pulp heroes and one of my favorites, Doc Savage. And they didn't even bother to hide it. He was found, his character was a baby orphan in war torn Europe who was taken and trained by scientists to be a near superhuman in all areas. And that's the Doc Savage history by these scientists. It was very funny. You've brought that up before, I think, either on the show or just in conversations that he does have that ripped straight from the pulp feel. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, Santo, Blue Demon, 
they're great. You know, and when I said earlier, you know, Mill's my guy. It's not that I don't like these other ones. I do. I love them. But there's mm-hmm, something about too. Mill. I mean, he was created specifically for the films. And he mm-hmm. would go on to become, you know, he's also a wrestler, obviously. But, you know, Santo Blue Demon, they had a career in the ring before they started making movies. Mill, I believe, and, and might be wrong, so correct me if I'm wrong, started in the movies and then went to wrestling. Is that? Well, he, he was a wrestler very briefly, but okay. they got him. What he was is he was a martial artist. He was a candidate for the Mexican judo team. He decided to go into the Olympics, but he decided to go into wrestling. That's all they ever say about it. I'm going to give an opinion that it's probably money-based because he he had such an amazing physique and he was such a great athlete. He could probably make money a lot quicker and get some fame. When the producer of the Santo and Blue Demon movies, Enrique Barag, I'm going to Say this right now. If I say names wrong, it's because of my, because of me. I've just, I, I've always been bad at pronunciation of names I don't know. Hey, you know what? At the very beginning of the show, in the introduction, I'm going to make it quite clear that neither one of us speaks Spanish. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> so, so there's a really good chance we're going to butcher some of these names, and it's not out of disrespect. Just these names to, pretty regularly. Yeah. But, uh, Santo wanted more money. Santo wanted a big raise because he was the major hero, and the Blue Demon had a very bad injury that would take him out of filming as well as wrestling. So he needed a new guy, and he made this character, Mil Mascaras, up, and he took this guy, coming wrestler named Aaron Rodriguez, to be Mil Mascaras. And he did that dual thing where he did the movies and he became a wrestler. And he followed the – there's a code of the luchadors with masks that most non-wrestling fans who are seriously into it don't know. Like, for example, one of the things that they do is they have these bets at certain times where they bet their mask. Yeah, mask versus mask match. Mask versus mask. And if you don't have a mask, you bet your hair and they shave you right in the ring. And Santo – was a bad guy originally, and he saw his like number one opponent, the Black Shadow, lose his mask. And he realized if he was going to have anything out of this character, he's going to need to stay in and become a technical hero kind of character. And that led to Santo's big push. But Mil Mascaras started as a hero, and I don't think he ever turned as a Rudo, a bad guy, in his history. And he won a lot of these mask versus mask matches and he was in a movie mil mascaras which was at at his origin the first two movies by mil mascaras the the villains weren't particularly interesting and then they started moving him into the santo blue demon secret agent uh fighting monsters kind of way and it worked a lot better but his movies as you said they're kind of the b level movies in these types though Honestly, none of, the, none of these are Academy Award-winning movies. Not even <laughs> any stretch of the event. Even the good ones are like you kind of have see some serious holes in them. Like, oh, sure. You know, yeah, but you just don't care. They're fun. They're fun. They're awesome fun. And it, you got to love a world that they created where these guys are able to walk around the street wearing masks and nobody's looking at them like, what the hell is going on here? You know, everybody's like, okay, that's normal. (laughs) (laughs) But I will add something about this, what you were saying about the history of Mil Mascaras. They have similar histories for Santo and the Blue Demon. Santo was based on the Phantom, the comic strip character 
that's been running like over 70 years in the newspapers and is still going to this day. Okay. There's a history of guys in the silver mask fighting uh, Baron Barcula and all they, all these villains over the years. And um, that he's kind of the phantom of the luchador universe. The blue demon has a history and I don't have the details on it too well. That's based in Batman. So the big three, as they're known, are Santo, the Blue Demon, Mil Mascaras, are created out of comic strip, comic book, and pulp, respectively, which is actually doubly cool to me if you think about that. Well, sure. I mean, your listeners, Frank's a writer of New Pulp, so yes. you know he, he's got that background with the Doc Savage and a number of other amazing pulp heroes. And that's something else that I love about these films. And I wanted to comment on what you just said, that there's this world that these films create. They're not any more realistic than say like a mummy movie or a Dracula film from universal or hammer or whatever, but it's such a unique world. It's so out there. I mean, these guys walking around in these masks and, and I know the Lucha Libre culture is still strong today. And it isn't uncommon to see wrestlers and people wearing masks and the luchador thing. It's actually starting to come back up again a little bit here in the States as well with shows like Lucha Underground and things like that. So you see this view into this world, this pop culture uh, that was totally unique to Mexico in the 50s, 60s, 70s with these films. And you just need to watch it for a few minutes and you're already taken into this environment, this, this ride that you're not going to find anywhere else. For those who've never seen it, these movies almost always start with a wrestling match with mm -hmm. the hero versus a tough wrestler. They invariably win, but it's usually a tough contest. And then they go into the story and they walk around. They, they're still wearing their wrestling masks all the time, but they're wearing regular clothing. And everybody acts like not only that this is normal, but that they are – heroes that everybody understands very well like all the police departments are always very willing to work with them where you could picture you know modern police officers like oh sure get you know get get the men with straight jackets for this guy <laughs> in modern, you know <laughs> but they always treat it like oh no no santo is here it's like we have to you know we have to listen to what he says and uh mel mascaras and all of that and um it, it's this unique kind of change to the world where the hero is always respected, the bad guy is often the other guy in the, in the ring, and he respects the rules of the ring to a degree, as all wrestlers do, even when you're the bad guy. You know, you, if you're pinned, you lose, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of a, a unique world. And they started it more as more spies and secret agents, and then it became about monsters. And the monsters were – a lot of them were Aztec mummies. There seemed to be a ton of those. <laughs> oh, sure. Mexico and, was just littered with mummies apparently was, according to these or, films. I mean it's like Egypt didn't have as many mummies as, the, as Mexico seemed <laughs> to have. And then they started adding the classics. I mean Dracula, the wolfman who didn't have a lot of Cheney's character's name or even anything close to that. But that's okay. They would have the vampire women and uh, evil scientists. Uh, in fact, one of the evil scientists was the son of the original Frankenstein, and they gave him the name Irving. Irving Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> I just never got past that one. Irving. 
it's like the first thing it's supposed to be Switzerland, so I can't see an Irving in Switzerland. But it's like Irving Frankenstein. It's like there's something really <laughs> off there. I love the low budget Mexican horror versions of these characters. So the Dracula in one of these films is just. <laughs> So ridiculous. He's done, and I wanted to learn more about some of these actors and actresses, but some of them are just kind of like these one-off guys they would put in these roles, and the Dracula in one of the Santo uh, Blue Demon films is just <laughs> amazing. And then I, I can't remember which one it is, but there's a Frankenstein monster with like a Fu Manchu mustache. Yes, yes. <laughs> it that drives off in a convertible. Yep. I mean, yeah, it, come on. These movies, they, the characters they would get, the one that I'm thinking of is Santo and the Blue Demon meet uh, Dracula and the Wolfman. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that always made me laugh about it, I saw this as a kid. I actually own it these days. Uh, they start with the evil hunchback, you know, invoking Satan and all of that, and he's going to bring them back. And when he brings them back, he opens these caskets, and they have these skeletons, very neat white skeletons. And when he does the ceremony to bring these two monsters back, suddenly the guys are wearing clothes. It's like in addition to their flesh, their clothes came back. And Dracula also came back with a big cane. So it's like, you know, where the heck did this come from? With these clean white skeletons. But when the blood drips on them, all of a sudden they come back to life and they're fully clothed. And it's right out of the um, costume shop Dracula's where he had the <laughs> little little metal around his neck mm-hmm. and, and the cape and, uh, you know, the cheap tuxedo kind of look. And the guy who played the Wolfman, his name was uh, Rex Rufus, was the name of the character. Oh, what a great name for a Wolfman. Yeah, what a great name for it, Rex Rufus. He comes back and he's wearing this like silk like mariachi kind of outfit top that's like in gold or yellow I'm colorblind so I'm going to guess on it and his plan to kill this this family who killed them is he's going to immediately seduce one of the daughters of the of the, this professor and pretty much all he has to do is 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 save her and up oh, she's done she's him. He's got her. (laughs) It's like it was like there was like no jump in here. She starts dating him. She's in love with him and, well, discovers he's the evil guy and dies. It's like there was like no story logic. (laughs) Uh, But I just always loved that when they were brought back, they came back fully clothed. That just cracked me up as a kid. And um, the guy who played Dracula in that movie, he he was a good looking guy. But his acting skills seemed to uh, seem to only happen when he would try to sort of try to bulge his eyes out and speak in a very like slow rhythm. But that's all he seemed to have in the entire movie. It ended up kind of disappointing because he didn't really do anything in terms of fighting. I mean, I was actually looking forward to seeing how Santo or the Blue Demon would you know, take on a guy who could lift him up with one hand and toss him aside. But I guess because he wasn't a wrestler, they didn't let him do it. I mean, and that's the thing is a lot of these characters or, or villains, these monsters, they would be, I don't know how many listeners actually watch wrestling or, or anything like that now, but I, I suppose you would consider some of the wrestlers that would play the mummies or these other monsters, they'd be jobbers to like the Mil yeah. the Blue Demon, you know, they're just, 
there's somebody way down on the totem pole or somebody who doesn't have the name recognition that they put the mask on, let them be the monster. So you have somebody who can wrestle so with you know your heroes. So you have that sometimes in some of these movies. I, I want to go back to something that you had said earlier, too. And I, I meant to say something earlier. You gave Mil Mascaris' real name out, and that's a matter of public record. But even yes. today, a lot of these luchadors, they're – Real name is not known, and and that's a thing. I mean, if you look him up on Wikipedia, you'll even see instead of the real name, you'll find out that their real name's not known. It's not a matter of public record, and that's just how it is. That's part of that yeah, culture. Yeah, no, that actually goes into generations. Yeah, that's a thing. Santo's son is a wrestler now, and his grandson is known as grandson of Santo. Uh, he also has another, I think, son or grandson that's a wrestler, and their names are not known. One of the most popular wrestlers of the Santo period was a man named Dr. Wagner. His name wasn't known until he retired, and his son is now Dr. Wagner Jr., probably just known as Dr. Wagner, and nobody knows his name. It goes into generations the Blue Demon Jr. is another wrestler was in, uh, who appeared in uh, Mil Mascaras versus the Aztec Mummy, appeared at the end there. His name isn't known. There's this whole respect for that, you know, that they keep their secret identity and they wear their mask all the time. And that's kind of cool when you think about it. It really is. It's probably the closest thing that you're actually going to get to a real-life superhero, at least with a secret identity yeah. and all that. I mean, Blue Demon Jr., up until recently, and I think he may even still be semi-active now. I know he's done a couple of conventions. He was on that Lucha Underground program last year or last season. Here in the Portland area, we've got a very small Lucha Libre group. And I know, depending on when this episode goes out, I may have had a chance to see him because for Cinco de Mayo, they're putting on a show. And oh. there are wrestlers there like Mega Boy, who's a local guy, but Mascarita Sangriata, is that his name? The, yes. He's scheduled yes. to be here, and there's a few others as well. You don't see it nearly as much with the women wearing the masks and having their identity hidden, but there are some. There are some, and uh, some of these wrestlers actually have married mm -hmm. fellow luchador, female luchadors. Um, I believe Dr. Wagner, I could be wrong, was married for a time to a uh, female wrestler, and his son was raised by her family as well as his, and they're both like wrestling families. There's whole families that are into this luchador, into multiple generations, which is just mind-blowing because in our lives, there have only really been two that I've known of, which is the Hart family, and that's Bret uh, Hart, and his whole family is into multiple generations, starting with uh, Bret Hart's father, and there's a generation now that's wrestling after them, uh, Bret and his, his generation, and the Von Erich family, which has one of the most tragic wrestling histories, with so many of their members dying or killing themselves uh i didn't know that it was uh, anything more than like those two until much later in life when i discovered that luchadors in mexico even mil mascaras his brother was a wrestler and his nephews are wrestlers including one named albert del rio i don't really watch wrestling too much anymore who was who was in the wwe so it's like dude, this is a whole family business as well yeah it's kind of scary <laughs> it's really fascinating i mean this isn't a wrestling podcast, so I don't want to get too into it. Yeah. But, you know, the, the wrestling fandom here in the States compared to what little I know of what the wrestling fandom is like in Mexico, vastly different. And even the style of wrestling is vastly different. We're talking two out of three falls. We're talking these long athletic matches that – 
I mean, these guys are working it. And you see these matches at the beginning of these films that we're talking about here, or in the middle of a movie, you'll have a break and here's some footage from a match. They're going to work into the story. They are really going at it. I mean, this is a physical thing. We talk about them being built and you think about like a, a wrestler today here in the States and the WWE, you know, you have this kind of stereotypical kind of mindset. These Mexican wrestlers of the 60s and 70s, these, these huge barrel chested guys. It's, it's a different yes. kind of buff, you know? It was a very natural musculature. Mm-hmm. But one of the interesting things that I've always known about Mel Mascaras is he is not as beloved by wrestlers in this country because of his Mexican luchador beliefs in that he and the wrestlers down there believe that you have to do all moves properly. You can't just get me to sell that you punched me if you don't make it look like a real punch. And some wrestlers in this country don't like it, and he doesn't particularly care because he always said that wrestlers that don't sell it aren't going to get my my business, basically. You know, you got to show me your talent, and a lot of American wrestlers, according to him, learn how to act like a wrestler but don't actually learn – the fighting skills that that comes into being a wrestler. And that's not to say all of them. There are many, many, many that respect Mil Mascaras for that. But there are others like superstar Billy Graham and Mick Foley who said that, you know, he's a pain in the ass to work with because you got to do it perfectly every time or he's just going to make you look bad. And that actually makes me kind of respect him even more because that's kind of a martial artist attitude. And I'm a martial arts instructor, so I got a lot of <laughs> a lot of belief that you know you just prove more of my point right there. Right, and I was going to bring that up too. Is is the McFoley thing? I think, and I don't know if it's still you know an active feud or beef between the two, but. You know, I have read some translated interviews with Mil Mascaris where he says, you know, if you don't do the move right, I'm not going to give it back. I'm not going to reward you by reacting to a move that you didn't do correctly. There's this, this level of professionalism and perfectionism that I totally respect. It kind of raises him to a different level. I mean, he has that martial artist attitude, and it comes through in his movies as well. I mean, even if his movies are not as quality for luchador films as others – when he does something in these movies, you actually kind of buy that he's doing the moves, that he's acting in a certain way, that he's not playing a game. That he's not just a guy in a mask, that he actually believes he is Mil Mascaras. And that's maybe also another reason I really love his movies, even if they're not as technically as sound as the others. There's just something that I buy into with him. Yes. That, that, that goes it, above and beyond with the others. Again, not saying I don't like Santo, not saying I don't like Blue Demon, and I love a lot of the other ones too, but there's, there's something about the Mel Massacre's movies, even Robbery of the Mummies, which <laughs> half an hour yeah. into our conversation we're going to talk about here in a second. Yeah, um, after all this time, we're finally talking about the movie we're supposed to be talking about. <laughs> you know, uh, there's just something about it that's just fascinating, and you want to learn more. I would read a novel about Mimascaris. I don't know if Mimascaris ever had comic books like Santor or Blue Demon did, but I'd read those. He had some, but not nearly as many. Enjoy more Mimascaris stories. Yeah, I would too. Um, he's really quite, and a man who's still wrestling, and he's in his like late 60s, I believe. I'm he's still in good shape, he's still, too. He's still in fantastic shape, I mean, and he still moves really well. So, that said, we should talk about this movie. Uh, 
Oh, what a movie, what a movie. Robbery uh, of the Mummies of Guanajuato. I'm going to try to pronounce the Spanish title. You ready, listeners? Okay, here okay. we go. Yeah, wish me luck. El Robo de las Mummies de Guanajuato. Yeah, better than I would have done it, man. So I, I give you I give you my hats off to you if I was wearing That's about as Spanish as I'm going to get, I think. <laughs> that's, that's as close as I'm going to get to it either. Yeah, this movie w- had some seriously funny stuff in it for me. Um <laughs> I mean, it opens with not your typical fight scene like they usually do, but they actually introduce the villains. And the main villain, Count Cogliostro, the way it's shot in the beginning, it looks like he's coming in a coach uh, that's being led by the Grim Reaper. It it was kind of fun that uh, the, the setup is the Count Cogliostro has been summoned to meet this doctor, mad scientist, who wants to take over the world. And they have this whole long conversation about how warlocks were the scientists of the past and they're going to work together. (laughs) And I just, I'm I'm watching this like, this don't make a lick of sense, but boy, is it fun. The director of the movie actually played Count Cogliostro. And and you can pronounce his name, right? No. We don't even (laughs) remember it off the top of my Uh, head. Tito Navarro, I believe, is he's the director, and he had a long and varied acting career. Even appeared in a movie, at least one movie, with Boris Karloff called "The Alien Terror," which is one of the Mexican movies he made toward the ends of his life. I don't think they ever shared screen time technically because Karloff didn't ever go to Mexico to make these movies, but they're in the same movie together. Yeah, they are, and he does have that. It's a good setup in the sense that uh, you have like the magic man and the scientist, but. There's a like an added little funny thing to it to me. I caught it right at the beginning. His crest has a C and a C on it, which I'd never seen before. And I realized immediately in the dialogue, oh, it's, it meant Count Cogliostro. So they were trying to sell it from the beginning that he was some kind of evil magician guy. One thing I liked about his character was he moved around like with great dignity everywhere. No matter where he was, he always looked like he was like on a stage, like – overdoing Dracula. Yes. Yeah. I really, I mean, I really got a kick out of the way he walked every time because he had this cape around him and he had this like majestic head in the air. I'm better than you kind of attitude. And the guy playing the scientist had the absolute opposite type of walk. He had his like head hunched all the time and, you know, always like looking side to side and like looking nervous at all times where he's his partner always looked like he was on stage. It was a very funny, funny routine that they had going there. It was very uh, Abbott and Costello in my brain. I loved it. <laughs> I loved watching them interact with each other and kind of the back and forth. And as the movie progresses, you see Cagliastro start taking a, a back seat to the professor and his machinations. And it's, it's really interesting. I mean, to see the movie not start with a wrestling match, like you see so many of these films start, you have this awesome entrance from Count Cagliastro coming in on that that coach was just awesome i mean it throws you right into the kind of the silly factor of the movie but it doesn't matter it's great yeah it really was fun to have that and when they do their meeting they finally decide to the the way to <laughs> to get their problem solved is they were going to get these mummies to show where these um to show where this mine was that killed all of them uh, this hidden mine that was like, you know, it seemed about 10 minutes outside of town based, based on the way they showed it. <laughs> it, was, it was like the mine is like, you know, oh, there's the mine. It's like, you know, it's like it, it's not particularly well hidden since everybody seems to find it in about 30 seconds. So when we're introduced to the mummies, 
there's like eight of them, and they're all standing for some reason. You were talking earlier about the Dracula and those coming back fully clothed. Well, the mummies start out fully clothed in modern clothing. Yeah, modern clothing mummies, like, what, what is going on here when I first saw that? And it's like, they're all standing upright. They all have these really horrifically twisted faces and hands. And they're wearing this modern clothing, and they're standing in these little, like, uh, arches. And they're all together. I said this to my wife after I watched it the first time. It's like they're standing in these arches, but they're supposed to be miners who were killed in an accident. Why were they all buried together? <laughs> it's like, you know, these are the kind of questions I'll ask and laugh about because I'm not actually going to take it as a negative. I'm going to take it as, hey, this is just plain fun. I like that. It's like they didn't even bother to try to explain this. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this mummy setup is pretty common in a lot of these films to yes. have them all buried together or in this tomb together. A lot of times has an attraction for tourists to come in and check out. Yes. So this is pretty common in, in a lot of these films. And <laughs> the, the masks on the mummies are kind of over the top ridiculous, but it doesn't matter. Well, no, they're very much like not Don Post kind of masks, no. like Don Post knockoff masks. You know, they were they were really overdone and like these bloated potato faces. The only time I'd seen that, the first time actually I saw that was in that really bad Dracula versus Frankenstein movie where Frankenstein looked like oh. a boiled potato. Yeah, and Fra and Dracula had a fro. <laughs> yeah, you, you watch your tongue. I love that movie for all the I wrong reasons, but I love that movie. That's awesome. It's so bad, it's awesome. That was meant to be a biker movie that they switched suddenly. I love it. <laughs> now, that movie cracks me up every time I see it, and I always, whenever I think of, you know, monsters with the boiled potato heads, I always think of that Frankenstein movie. Oh, yeah, it's pretty rough. And, yeah, it was really rough. And one of the great things in all of these movies is when the monster is not, like, the main monster – they end up having these like slow, stiff walks. And it's like, it, but when they shoot it, it ends up looking like a bunch of people having a stroll down the park. Yep. <laughs> There's nothing particularly frightening about it. And invariably, a street kid sees the mummies being walked off. And he tells the adult that he spends time with uh, the shoeshine business about that. And they try to tell the police and the police don't believe them. So immediately he calls his friend Mil Mascaras. Yeah, about 20 minutes into the film, that's yeah. where we get our wrestling match. And our, our two street folk, I guess, shoeshiners, is that what they were, were shoeshiners? They were carrying yes. a little box yep. and I, I couldn't tell exactly what it was. At one point in the movie, uh, the adult was shining a guy a guy's shoes while talking to the kid. Oh, okay. I think, I think that was when the annoying kid was trying to say, let's go look for the mine and see if there's anything there. You know, and some of your listeners probably know me, know I've always had a problem with the cute, annoying kids. When I saw Peter Frankenstein and Son of Frankenstein, I was cheering for the monster to throw him in the sulfur pit. I was always <laughs> like this. And I had no change in behavior in this movie. It's like, well, if you kill them, he could be another mummy. What do I care? It was like, you know, I, I know it's bad to think these things about children, but annoying children actors in horror movies and all that, I've always been the one that wants to, you know, it's okay if they're killed off screen. You don't have to kill them. Just get them out of my movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, this was the first time viewing for me. I hadn't watched it before. And when the kids showed up, 
I was like, oh, no. I mean, you, you, it might work. I mean, there are a couple of movies where, like, Blue Demon has a son and he's part of the story, whatever. But, oh, man. I'm, yeah, it always drags the movie down. Yeah, and this kid's really over the top and doesn't seem as scared as anybody else. And th- that's something that kind of you don't see as much in, like, say, American horror movies where the adults are yep. like, ah, oh, whatever. It's not, you know, the kids are freaked out. No, not in this one. The kid's uh, – you know, the one who's brave and sending up to the mummies. And maybe that has to do with the target audience of some of these movies. I don't know. Could be. Could be. Yeah. And yeah, then we see the wrestling match with Mil Mascaras. And I'm going to try to pronounce a Mexican name. So it's my turn. El Rayo de Jalisco. I actually looked this one up. I looked this Jalisco. 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 See? Jalisco. Uh, but that really means the lightning from Jalisco. And I actually know about him. He was a professional wrestler uh, who was very, very well known in his career and is considered like technically one of the best wrestlers of the time. He did some movies, but what really fascinated me about him and the reason I knew him from before this movie was his last match was a mask versus mask bet against the blue demon and he lost. So it, it like wow. brought it all back. Yeah. It's like, that's the reason I knew it. Cause I was looking into the blue demon some years back and I, remembered him from this movie and a couple of others and he lost his mask to the blue demon when the blue demon was like coming out of retirement in the 80s just for like a match or three and i found that to be really if you got to go out you got to go out to santo or the blue demon i mean that's it uh he's still around though he's i think he was born in the 30s and his son is uh got the same character name Mm -hmm. and this is another one of the generational things he has a grandson who wrestles under the name rayman yeah, so there you go. It's another generational enough. thing. Uh, this guy, the Lightning from Jalisco, he is a Hall of Famer. He has been involved in wrestling since the 1950s. And he, even though his mask to me isn't the most exciting, it's way too sparkly for my tastes. Yeah, me too. Uh, and maybe that's just how it was shot in the film. I don't know. To me, he's... I, I think should have had second billing in this film. And when you look, to look at material from this film, you see Mil Mascaras and the Blue Angel listed as like yeah. the two guys. I didn't know there was a third guy in this film until I started watching. It's like, why didn't we promote that guy? Because the yeah, Blue well, Angel. I'm going to give an opinion here. And this is all opinion because yeah. I don't know. I have looked and I did it again when we talked about this movie as being the one we're going to watch. And I did a really hard search, and I've done this before. It's like the third time I've tried to find anything out about the Blue Angel, and it comes up pretty much nothing. He's a well-built guy. He looked like a good-looking guy, very muscular, and he wore the a mask that looks exactly like Captain America. Yeah. Complete with the A on the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his wrestling skills, and I watched this again to see this, his wrestling skills are almost non-existent. I have a feeling, and this is just an, a, a guess here, he was created to be a movie actor wrestler and that they wanted to promote him as a future one. And the problem was he just didn't have – it takes. He's not particularly charismatic, and his wrestling skills are pretty minimal, and he gets beat up in every scene he's in. So it, it – you know, he really didn't come off as particularly anything. And I have a feeling they were trying to create something there, uh, something new, and nothing came of it. That's gonna that's a total guess here. And, you know, some expert might tell me, hey, you're 100% wrong. I'm fine with that. But yeah. Still. I mean, I would like to know because he didn't do much film-wise. He no. was in this one and then one other movie. 
another mummy it, film. I can't find anything more about him. And that's it. Uh, now, I, I do happen to like their headquarters, though it's definitely a step down from when he was when, with uh, the, the Champions of Justice. Uh, Mil Mascaras's headquarters uh, seems to be a very cheap and poorly built gym with very pretty girls in short skirts. And, you know, and? I, I can see the positive there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and the, the, well, if you watch, you actually look at the equipment that they use in that place. It's like, it is like strictly stuff that uh, you, you would get out of a gym in the 1950s. It was outdated then. So yeah. it was kind of funny to see that. He has one assistant who doesn't dress in the standard red top short skirts. I believe her name is Mabel Luna, and she's an actress. Okay. Who, um, yeah, I'm, guess, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing here. I think her name, that's her name. That's what my, main, my brain is telling me. And she was an Argentinian actress who played the number one girl in this group. And her job seems to be consisted first of wearing shorter outfits than everybody else and reading things for Mel Mascaras or yelling for the heroes to come and save them. Uh, she wasn't much of an assistant otherwise. I mean, there was definitely no liberation in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and they decided to do an investigating, and this is when you actually see a little bit of the hints of Mil Mascaras being more than a guy in a mask. He pulls out a magnifying glass and he starts investigating clues of the mummies, which actually was kind of cool if you think about it. So I, I yeah, could have done that, with a longer sequence of that of them looking for clues. And, and I do like, you know, we've got to go now. The clues are going to go away if we don't go check it out. And then about five minutes later, Hey, here's the mine. Yeah. But- it was, a, that, that's <laughs> what was so funny is not only the mine was like a short drive away and they went in this big convertible driven by Mel Mascaras with most of the girls, the little kid and the little kids, adult guardians character. And, the Blue Demon, and I'm going to call him Lightning just because of my pronunciation. They ride motorcycles with one girl behind each of them. You know, it's like, but they're driving at about 20 miles an hour, and it comes off looking about 20 miles an hour. Yeah, but it seems to be about, you know, about 10 minutes outside of town that this mine exists. <laughs> the lost mine is, you know, well, a short walk away. <laughs> the lost mine that we had to resurrect these mummies for to find for us because there's no way we could have found it. There's no serious like Indiana Jones moment no. where we have to we have to invoke this. I mean, like in that Santo movie we were talking about briefly, um, they you know he actually has to spend some time reading about you know occult stuff in these big tomes. You know, there's a you know a couple of minutes of just Santo reading stuff while things are going on behind when he's not aware of it. There's none of that in this movie. There's like okay, we're gonna jump straight to this. And that's also when you get to see the lack of presence of lightning and the blue de- uh, blue angel. They both get their butts whipped pretty fast. Yeah, that's true. And there's a lot in this movie, and I want to comment on that real quick, where the things just kind of move along pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. To stretch it out like, just a little bit, they typically will throw a skull on the screen for about half a frame or half a second. Yeah, that kept cracking me up. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 was, it was like, okay, why does the skull keep appearing on the movie? It was like our transition. It was like the old Batman TV show. Da, 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 you know? <laughs> that was it. Yeah, the skull, skull, skull. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they kept doing this transition. And then later in the movie, 
you actually see a really funny thing if you pay attention. You know, we, we were talking about the coach that Count Cagliostro came mm-hmm. in on by the Grim Reaper. When they, they, they kept it like from when they shot it originally, it was sort of from the side in a weird kind of angle. So you really couldn't see much of it. It was white. And he came out of it, and uh, the Grim Reaper put a ladder in for him to get out. Well, they they must have not been paying attention because they shot this scene later in the movie with a side view of it. And you realize the thing is about the size of a trunk. It, it's really very <laughs> tiny, and like six people get out of this thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, of course, having these Doctor Who TARDIS thoughts while, you know, they keep pulling all of these people, these uh, mini Australia. There's like five or six of them in the movie who beat up the Blue Angel and uh, Lightning pretty regularly. Yeah, and, uh, yeah I <laughs> thought that was uh... <laughs> that was awesome. I love that. You know, it's like you can't not only can you not be good against the mummies, the 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 let's use the word midget wrestlers are beating the hell out of you every time they see you. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it reminded me of that movie. I'm going to get you sucker where <laughs> uh, they're talk. Keanu uh, is talking to his mother who talks about how he once got beat up by, uh, by this family of little people. And at one point we meet up with that little person who's, who is ready to get into a fight with him and says, from the waist down, man, you're mine. <laughs> was, oh no. Yeah, it, really, it was such an awesome line, and it stayed with me all these years. Well, that's what happened. I mean, they, they didn't even take much for the for the Blue Angel and Lightning to get their butts whipped by these uh, mini Estrella wrestlers, and the girls were absolutely just there to scream. They had no actual purpose otherwise. True. But when they when they showed this coach. And out comes, you know, the majestic Count Cagliostro. You realize that it's barely will fit him. It's like, you know, and then all these other people have to pile out. It's like, it's like, okay, the TARDIS existed in Mexico or or Guatemala. I think they shot this in Guatemala. Uh, (laughs) So I had a great laugh out of that little accident. It was like, you know, when they show certain graveyard scenes in horror movies where the graves are just too closely shot and you realize the tombstones are like two, two feet from each other. So it would be like a pet cemetery if it is the only thing that would fit in there. <laughs> it's like I get these weird views on these things, and that's what I was getting out of that one. I don't know if you caught this, but the original plan seemed to be uh, he was talking about a mind control machine and warheads. They sort of dropped the mind control machine out of the storyline, and it became about bombs. Yeah, the villain's motivation, what they're trying to do, does seem to kind of, bah, you know what? Let's just blow up the world, whatever. Yeah, and, you know, we start with this kind of sort of interesting premise. He needs to get this element out of this mine. These miners that they have to resurrect have to go get for us to make our mind control devices, make the world a better place. The rest will show up. Ah, whatever. We're just going to blow up the world. Yeah, it, it really, it kind of degenerated. They, they didn't honestly know where to go with it. Another theory here is they probably just couldn't figure out how to build the machine in the budget <laughs> they had. So they just decided, yeah, we just won't mention it anymore. You know, it's like, eh, whatever. <laughs> the downside to that is that because that happens, Cagliostro starts to fade into the background. And I liked him as a villain. I mean, he was charismatic. And like you said, he does walk into the scene like this Shakespearean stage actor surrounded by these guys in masks and it doesn't matter. 
he just was fun to watch. And as the movie shifts in tone, it's about the mad scientist and his troop of little wrestlers going after yes. everybody, and, which is a trope. I mean, you see that in a lot of these movies, and I love it. But I miss Cagliostro being the more central villain. When I, the first time I saw this movie, I had kind of the thought that, you know, pretty soon Cagliostro would be making the scientist sort of into his slave. And, you right. know, all the, it would become a kind of, you know, mix of uh, magic and super science. And we could have some fun with it. But, uh, well, you know, it became about the scientist and the scientist became very much of the dick dastardly school of uh of evil acting you know it's like i'll kill the world i'll kill all things i don't care everybody's going to be my slave it's like really <laughs> in fact at the very end and <laughs> i was flashing back to that james bond film uh the pierce brosnan one with the computer hacker who dies at the end when the base explodes it's like i am invincible and everything blows up around him yeah yeah, yeah something yeah. similar happens with the professor in this but it's just so much more over the top yes really it was like he was really literally grabbing his mustache and pulling it at that point it was like oh, <laughs> come on man it's like you you, you you definitely needed a script writer for the second half of this movie. The mummies were obviously played by jobbers, like you very accurately said, because not one of them could fight for a, a lick. No. And that drags it down because Mil Mascaras has such spectacular fighting skills. I mean, he, he was renowned for like jumping off of ropes and into people and high flying flips and all sorts of really Good stuff that you see in some of his uh, better movies uh, were used like in uh, The Champions of Justice, which is basically the uh, Justice League of Luchador films. Which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, you, you got Yeah, actually one of the earliest ones I ever saw on UHF. And one of the reasons I, I loved it and didn't understand a word of it, and I still don't really, is it opens with all of these masked wrestlers on motorcycles riding down into the night with each other it's like oh okay i think we got something cool here and then you know you have like the blue demon who while he didn't have the charisma of santo he had really great fighting skills it yeah. is unfortunate that the jobbers the mummies don't put up more of a fight because you do see that the fight sequence kind of suffer with mamascaras and especially with jalisco because you know, he's supposed to be this super uh, well-known wrestler, one of the best out there, Hall of Famer, won numerous championships, and he doesn't have a good opponent to go against. So no, you see him do these like, backward headbutts over and over again, and it's just kind of awkward looking because, again, we're not a wrestling show, but a wrestling match is only as good as your weakest opponent. Right, and he only – like when he was supposed to fight uh, the mummies and they were coming to – kidnap a woman which made no sense to the story but right. whatever uh it it just happened in midway there the uh assistant Mabel Luna's character helen helen i think is her name calls for lightning 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 and he comes out he starts fighting and he pretty much gets one hit to the back of the head and he's unconscious it was like you know it was like nothing to it it kind of yeah it, it kind of took away from the enjoyment because i wanted to you know we had seen him in the ring with a real wrestler, you saw this guy is really good. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was moving as good as Mel Mascaras, and that's really impressive stuff in that in, in that fight there. But after that, 
everybody he fought, he would pretty much get beat up like almost instantly, along with the Blue Angel, who really didn't ever demonstrate anything in terms of acting skills, let alone fighting skills. He just he was just sort of standing there a lot. You know, I actually I have the movie playing on my Kindle with the sound off while we're talking here, and we've been talking so long the movie's almost over. But I'm we're <laughs> I'm at the moment where they're having the big fight out in the field with the mummies, all three of them, and you said that just as Blue Angel's just kind of like looking around, like uh, who who do I fight now? You know? <laughs> yeah, there's there's really not a place, man. There were really a lack of um, acting skills, let alone wrestling skills there. So I have a feeling that the producer of this film had said, you know, this is a good-looking guy. There's a history of guys who were taken, you know, because they were good-looking, muscular guys and making them into major names. Uh, the guy from the Champions of Justice, uh, Tiana Bloss, I don't know. Oh, he's like, great. Yeah, he's oh, like he looks so alien. cool. Great mask with the black face mask. Oh, he's and, awesome. I want to know more yeah. about that guy. Yeah, well, he was – I know he was a bodybuilder before he became a wrestler, and he tried to become a wrestler because it was a good way to make money, really. He didn't have any money, and he had a really – he was a weightlifter bodybuilder. And I think he worked under a couple of different names until he was given this identity of this, like, alien warrior kind of thing, uh, Tiana Blasa, the darkness or something, I think it means – he actually had skills and he had presence and the blue angel does not have either of those. You know, he just comes off as a, uh, a fairly muscular semi, you know, what we can see of his face, good looking kind of guy, but he was just like a useless part of the plot. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah. But these movies, you take what you take. That's true. You know, That's true. I don't suppose there's like a, a luchador central casting you can call. You just kind of get what you can get. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I mean, by this point, it seems to me that I, from what I gathered, this is when luchador movies were sort of going downhill. Any, you know, because of budgets and things like that. And it's too bad because it's a, it's a, it's a style of movie making that was so unique and fun to, uh, that I keep learning more. I've read books on the subject. I've seen many of these movies, um, in Spanish, which of course means I'm interpreting what I'm seeing. <laughs> so, you know, I read the, this plot and it's like, okay, I got that one wrong, but I'm enjoying it. That's the fun of the, these movies. This was a fun movie. It's the international language of wrestling. That's all you need to know. Right. And, you know, <laughs> he, this is the bad guy. I mean, the acting here is, you know, strictly subpar soap opera. So you kind of know what you're going to get into it. They, they don't try to remake the wheel. There's no. always a girl who has to be rescued. Uh, the wrestlers have to wrestle, and uh, the bad guys will always act incredibly bad. The, the, there isn't a lot of gray areas to it. It's black and white, but yeah. it's fun. The, the drama is pretty obvious, and it, it's like a wrestling opera. I mean, you know who the bad guy is just by the way they come on the screen and act and move. And I mean, if you can find a dubbed or subtitled version of some of these movies, sure, check them out. But you don't have to with these films. No, no, there's too much fun with it. You know, you're watching these movies and you can, you, you can have a lot of enjoyment. And I guess maybe it was easier for those of us who grew up where television wasn't like our only source of, in, uh, of entertainment, where I, I can read a book while, or a magazine while I'm watching one of these movies and sort of just drift in and out and not really care that I'm not understanding what the dialogue says, but I'm enjoying 
you know, how they're acting and, uh, and the music will tell me, okay, time for the bad guy. I can look up. It, there's no subtlety here. So that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned the music. I, I want to talk about the music real quick because a lot of these films, because they were low budget, because they're from the sixties and seventies, their soundtracks are so wacky. And this one, what, when, when did this film come out? Like 72, 73? 72. 72. The yeah. score in this, the soundtrack in this, especially when you've got Mil Mascaras driving around in his convertible, I want that soundtrack so bad. <laughs> it is so funny because they, because of it, they kept the same crazy soundtrack going mm -hmm. when they're supposed to be exploring these ruins. So it, it comes all like you know cartoonish that they're running around with it, and they're just walking around these ruins, and it's like the the soundtrack does not fit what's going on. No, but it's and so over the top awesome. It was great. I mean, it, that's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about these movies is that lack of subtlety with the soundtrack makes me always know what's going to go happen. It's like, okay, it's like, dun, 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 bad guy's about to appear. You know, there, <laughs> there's no, <laughs> there's no like, you know, let's, let's just slip in this to sort of build the mood. No mood. You go in, you get it. That's it. But sometimes they had to fill these spots with things that just totally don't fit. And they had this like weird jazz instrumental going through large portions of this. And it would have fit maybe in a scene of people driving down a fast highway, but not people driving slowly on a country lane, you know, just outside of town or as they're walking around looking for looking through birds. <laughs> I had so much fun laughing. Oh, at it's that. great. The music in these films are just so. <laughs> I think it was Keith Rainville, uh, the man behind the website from Parts Unknown. He wrote in his book, Zombie Mexicano. I think he compared the soundtrack to these films to like a broken down ice cream machine in some spots. Oh, he's so right. You know, yeah. or, or a Zamboni machine, you know, doing this weird kind of crazy music. But the music in this one, it's this weird kind of over the top jazz, just. <laughs> yeah and yeah. Uh, i think what they were going for and again i'm always just talking out of guesses here i think they were trying to build a second uh champions of justice with mel mascaras as the head of the group it does feel like that there's even this little bit where the three of them with the women all around them you know we have put our lives on the line for this kind of moment Right. And the problem is Mill, while he, he could probably carry a movie on his own and he has really, he doesn't really have that kind of leader kind of feeling like the blue demon does, you know, then the blue demon leads a group. It's like, he has that deep resident voice. It's like, Oh, I got to listen to him. But Mill has a deep voice and all of that. He just doesn't really come off. He comes off as kind of like, you go there, you go there, or I'm going to look here. You know, it was, it kind of came off more instead of uh, Batman. He came off as uh, Fred from Scooby-Doo. You know, I'm going to go look with the girls. You go, you go off and get beat up by the mummy, you know? And I think that's in the writing more than anything else, but, uh, it, you know. But it, when I saw that, you know, it's like, I'm going to, you, you girls stay here, but I'm going to stay with these girls and you go off and look for the mummies, you know, on your own uh, and get beat up by the mini Estrella and all that. It's a, uh, he, he kind of reminded me of Fred. <laughs> That's a really, really good way to put it. And not something I would have come up with. So 
<laughs> yeah, it's like even as a kid, I always found that to be a little weird. It's like, all right, I'm going to go off with the girls, but you go look for the mummy down in the basement. Even as a little kid, something always struck me as fishy about that. And I think it was uh, Harvey Birdman even openly mocked that, you know, intentionally. Uh, that behavior, but whatever, <laughs> it, you know, that, that's kind of how it came off. Like he came off more as the guy who was, uh, you know, I'm good at this. You're not so good at this. So I'm going to just send you over there and I'll do what I got to do. So it, it didn't come off really as a champions of justice so much as a Mel Mascaras and his, uh, his cheesy underlings. <laughs> <laughs> Mel Mascaras and his amazing friends. Yeah, really. It's like, you know, we'll replace you each week. You know, it wouldn't matter. That's how they wrote them. And unfortunately, it came out that way, um, which is too bad because there was another movie, uh, The Mummies of, and you could say the word, uh, the the city or town, whatever, Guada, whatever. Guanajuato. Yeah, there was another one uh, in 1970. That one starred him, but it also had his. He was uh, with Santo and the Blue Demon. This was kind of a sequel to that without them. Yeah, The Mummies of Guanajuato is actually a really, really good movie. I had a chance to see that on the big screen a couple of years ago here in Portland. And, I've never seen it that way. Oh, man. It was just so much fun. Santo is in that movie, but he doesn't turn up until the end. <laughs> yeah, uh, they had a habit that back then of Santo just appearing and solving all the problems. And it's like, right. I always wanted these guys to just look at him and say, like, really, dude? It's like, you know, really, you know, we've been fighting this thing all along and you're just going to come off and punch him and it's over. It's like, come on. We were talking earlier about how you don't need to see these movies in English or the original language or subtitled. You just watch the wrestling. You don't have to understand the dialogue. In The Mummies of Guanajuato, if you do understand the dialogue or have a subtitled version, you do get to see Mil Mascaris or hear Mil Mascaris have an obsession with restaurants at the end of that movie. It's like, we're going to go to the all-you-can-eat buffet. And it's it's this weird kind of character trait that just comes out of nowhere for him. Yeah, I remember that. It's like, <laughs> it's like you know, I, I have a feeling, and you saw this in like a lot of like 50s low-budget sci-fi and horror movies where they had to fill time. So they started throwing in what should be common dialogue in the middle of scenes, and you're just looking at it like, <laughs> what, what? Why are we talking about the water cooler now? You know, that kind of attitude. It's, uh, um, <laughs> and, and I have a feeling in times they were doing that because they like, we still need five more minutes. Oh, have no monster on us talk about restaurants. It's like, all right, you know, it's like, all right, we got to get this done by Tuesday. <laughs> and there were times in a lot of these movies they do that. And it's okay, you know, I take that for what it is because I love it. I love what I'm watching here. And I've seen so many of them, I can't even actually remember how many. And I probably understood about 11 of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that whole style, again, this whole other world, this this pulp I'm going to call it, it's a pulp style kind of storytelling in these films. And it's just this world you can immerse yourself in and just let go all of your preconceptions about how movies are supposed to be made. It doesn't matter. These films exist unto themselves and they're just a blast. They're so much fun. Even if you're not a wrestling fan, I think you're going to find something to love about these films. because They're just so adventurous over the top. Yeah, I, I mean, my wife couldn't care less about wrestling, even not even much uh, pulp or anything other than my stuff. And she has seen scenes of these movies walking in and out of the room, and she just get a kick out of some of what's going on there because the the lack of subtlety actually plays it and makes it better for it. 
Yes. Because you can sit and you get, you know, she once walked in during, uh, during a Santo movie, I don't remember which, and she said, you know, the guy, the, the bad guy is like looking like with a twisted evil face, you know, trying to be scary. And she said, is he trying to be scary or silly? I said, he's trying to be scary. Listen to the music. And, <laughs> she, and she's like, you know, getting a kick out of it. It's like, uh, why is he fighting a guy in a mask? Like, well, that's the blue demon or Santa or whatever it was. She's like, uh, this is kind of like a superhero thing. Oh, okay, that's interesting. And then she would go back to whatever she was doing because you can kind of pick it up as you're going without really a, a lot of thought and have a lot of fun with it because of it. And yeah, I guess I was born to be a pulp fan because I've been a fan of this stuff even before I knew who Doc Savage was. The, I knew Mil Mascaras's history before I knew who Doc Savage even existed. You know, so it was kind of like a weird way of getting into this stuff. It to me the coolest, uh, one of the coolest kinds of theater that there ever has been, and I'm glad they're trying to do it again. Unfortunately, the results are just not as enjoyable. I am going to be talking about one of the more recent Mimoscris films uh, with, or at least I'm scheduled to talk to him, uh, talk to Casey Criswell, my co-host from 1951 Down Place. Oh, very nice. Uh, the plan uh, and is, I'm not going to say a word. I want to hear what you two say about Yeah, it. I, I'm excited because he's never watched these movies. Really? Yeah, so... I really want to hear that. Yeah, he's he's not a big wrestling fan. He watches a lot of cheesy movies intentionally. That's what he loves. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk with him about Mil Mascaros versus the Aztec Mummy. Oh, this is going to be interesting because he's going to get introduced at the end to uh, a whole lot of the legendary wrestlers of the period. Right. That's, that's the approach I'm going to take is, you know, this is how things kind of ended up. And now I'm going to introduce you to these movies and show you some other ones as well. That's kind of the approach I'm taking with it. So hopefully that'll work out. That sounds fun. I'm going to, I'm not going to say anything on the new movies then because I want to hear his view on it because it sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun to hear somebody who's never been involved in this, uh, kind of luchador film universe, uh, you know, I had for many years thought I was one of the only people that was really into this until I met my friend online, Chuck Lordians, who, as you know, wrote the Children of the Night uh, timeline. We've talked about that in the past. Right. And he included a lot of this stuff in his timeline. And when I was reading his timeline, I was like, oh, my God, this is so awesome. This is what I've been loving all my whole my life. So we ended up becoming really good friends and we're practically a comedy team every time we're together. <laughs> I still need to get him on this show. Yeah, you really do because he he's a riot. And when he and I are together, it's literally like being in one of those road movies with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. The two of us are just constantly playing off each other. The same. <laughs> yeah, I, I call him Bing and he calls me Junior because of it. It's just it's it's been a running game with the two of us for years. And uh, he's a fun guy, a smart guy, and he loves this stuff too. And he he was actually showed me it's like it's okay to there are other people in the universe who love luchador movies besides you and like two friends. I'm having a blast going through these, and I've watched a lot of them, but not all of them, not nearly all of them. I don't think you can watch all of them because at this point, not all of them have even been released. Right. That's the thing. It's kind of hard to find a lot of these because they were only released in Mexico, and if they're on DVD, it was on some label in Mexico that didn't make it up here, went out of print, something like that. So to track all these movies down, I think, is going to be a never-ending quest. Pretty much. Pretty much. It's like um, – the Paul Nashy werewolf movies, there's two that might not even exist and people are always talking about. 
um, you know, that some say they've seen it and I've never believed them and they may never have been shot. And that there's a lot of that with these. And we've been talking about the three big guys. There's a ton of little ones that we, you know, that are never even been heard of. You know, like the guys like Super Zan or Tian Blas have done these movies. I've never seen them. Right. And I you mentioned know. Neutron. I mean, there were two of those films. Right. Neutron. I saw both of those. There's so many of these at the period because they were inexpensive and fast to shoot. And I'm going to guess the wrestlers did not charge major amounts. Sure. To play these parts. I mean, it was a huge cultural phenomenon there. I mean, I mentioned the comic books. The Santo comics, I mean, Santo comic books were outselling or being outread when it comes to like all the other comics, Spider-Man, Superman and all that. More people read Santo comics than those guys down there. It's because yeah. somebody would buy the Santo comic, read it, and then share it with 10 other friends. So, you know, they just got passed around. Blue Demon as well. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some... Mel Mascaras, but not a lot. I believe there was a couple of others I don't really know too well. I've tried to look into it, but I don't have the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish I could devote all my time to this. Yeah, I would love to track down some of the comics just to, just to see them. I know I can't read them, but just to kind of Amen. see how they did. A lot of them were done in, I think they call it Fumetti style, where they would take pictures of Santo and then mm -hmm. cut around them and put him in different scenarios and, and yeah. try dialogue around that. That's what I've read. I've only seen I've seen some comic images, but not many. And I'm gonna also guess on that one is that it probably cost a lot less to do it that way than oh, it would yeah. be to hire somebody to draw. Artists they like to be paid. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> Weird, eh? You know. It's, uh, um, so it's cheaper to do that. They did that in that cartoon series, the Marvel superheroes movies. Uh, cartoon series, I mean, um, that from when I was a little kid where they would just take like, they'd cut out like an image like from like a Kirby comic and shake it and it would be and throw in some, uh, somebody <laughs> speaking over it. You know, th that I have a feeling there was a lot of that without the speaking part, you know, just throwing it in, throwing in images of Santo, uh, and all that. But we'll see. I'll look into it. It's kind of funny if you think about it. Yeah. And I've not even seen him turn up on eBay very often. Which you'd think something like that would turn up out there. I find a lot of old Lucha Libre comic books, or excuse me, magazines. And in fact, the banner that I'm using for Monster Kid Radio's website this month, the Monster Kid Radio Lucha de Libre, is actually fashioned after the Lucha Libre magazine graphic. But I can't find any of the comics. So if any listeners have any leads on any of these comics, Frank and I would love to read them. Yes. Or at least yes. try to. <laughs> yeah, at least, you know, do what our best. But uh, <laughs> We'd like to look at the pictures. <laughs> yeah, basically how it is. It's like, you know, as you know, I write uh, for Black Coat Press, which is a French company. So a bunch of my books have been printed in French. And some of them have only been printed in French, like a short story or an article or something like that. And so when I look at it, it's like, okay, this is what it says, but I can't read it. <laughs> it's like, I wrote this, but I don't know what I said here. <laughs> I'll have to go back to the English version because I don't know. Because uh, it's actually, I got a lot of respect for people who can speak and read more than one language. And I wish I was one of them because there's so much out there that I'm missing, I think. I keep telling myself I need to learn Spanish so I can you know, understand all these movies, just like I want to learn Japanese so I can enjoy the kaiju films in their original language. Well, but, uh, you know, learning a separate language is uh, <laughs> time that I don't yeah, know if I have. And, uh, I don't know. I'd have so much trouble deciding what, it, you know, French because I write for yeah. French sometimes or Japanese because I love kaiju movies mm -hmm. and samurai movies or, 
Mexican, uh, Spanish, I'm about to say Mexican, Spanish, because there's so much uh, luchador and all that. And I could understand what Ricky Ricardo was yelling about, yelling at Lucy about. You know, that would be kind of nice. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that was racist or not, but I've always wondered, you know, and I never asked because it would be sounding you know, it sound pretty stupid, I guess, you know, <laughs> it's like, what's this man yelling at her? I can't roll my R. So that's my excuse for not really spending a lot of time trying to learn. So there, there's my hang up. Can I steal that one? I want to use that one. There now. you go. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Now I have an excuse for why I never learned to speak Spanish. <laughs> I can't <laughs> roll my R's properly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about your writing. I want to mention it again. I want to let listeners know. I read The Last Dominion, The Iron Skull. It came out in March. I got it from my Kindle, zipped through it pretty quickly when I read it. It is a pulp story. And, you know, I could see The Iron Skull wearing a mask and being a luchador. I mean, it's that kind of a pulp adventure type story that I really enjoyed. You want to tell our listeners what The Iron Skull is? The Iron Skull was a public domain superhero who was a android with no real explanation. He had a skull and crossbones on his chest and he didn't have a nose. And he did some adventuring and he was super strong and flew and all of that. And he disappeared like many of these public domain characters did. Well, a bunch of years ago, my very good friend and probably one of the greatest artists out there, Jay Piscopo, contacted me and he said, you know, I want to do something with characters like this, especially the Iron Skull. Because the Iron Skull, you know, we could go so many weird ways with it. And we talked about it. And we came up with this universe called The Last Dominion. And it involves these public domain superheroes with very unique twists to them. And the Iron Skull was the first choice in the bunch to do a story on. And I wrote a short story of the character where he fights this shark man character uh, in uh, Lake Titicaca in South America. And then Tommy Hancock said, you know, can can you write a novella on it? And I wrote this very bizarre pulp adventure that was like if Robert E. Howard wrote a pulp superhero. That's how it kind of came off the way it just started and wrote itself that way. And uh, Jay did the art on the cover for it, which is just awesome. He's just so good. And he's this character the way Jay and I created him, that he was actually built hundreds of thousands of years ago by like a lost empire to be a protector of the earth. And there's a lot of hints of lost worlds and stuff like that. And he hides under the guise of a, a guide, a hunter guide in South America. And he does these adventures and it was a lot of fun to write, but it was very demented. You know, it's a demented story. You know, that's what I liked is I liked the, you mentioned Howard. I picked up on the Howard immediately. And, you know, Lost World stories are just fun anyway. So you've got this Robert E. Howard superhero pulp thing going on. You've got this Lost Civilization story. It was a blast. It was a breeze to read. Thank you. I wish it was longer. And I would love to read more Iron Skull. So tell me there might be something in the future. There might be. Okay, there, there, okay. There's talks. Uh, Tommy Hancock, my um, unbelievably cool publisher who I work with for many years, um, he has talked about more Iron Skull and some more other things that we're working on. So it, it, it's very possible. The Last Dominion has some other characters in it that I know Jay and I want to develop. One is a public domain hero called the Purple Zombie. What? 
Yes, the purple zombie. He's a purple zombie. I can't go past that. That was the character's name, the purple zombie. Yeah, sink that one in. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, we we have some plans for him. Uh, there was a character before he became a can character, uh, the Green Giant, who was a hero, and we have a very definite storyline with him. And a couple of others, like a Captain America hero with a shield, but he's very, very, very different, and he has a a unique origin. It plays a lot into that Robert E. Howard, uh, Lost Worlds, Lost Empires thing that both Jay and I, and I know you do, absolutely love. We love to play into that stuff. Also, Jay and I are talking about some sci-fi stuff as well. It's great working with somebody so creative. He is so much more creative than I'll ever be, Uh, and he's such a good writer. Or two. So he created a series of kids comics called Captain Eli that are the closest you could ever find in this life to the old Johnny Quest stories. And they involve things also like Kaiju and I can't speak well of them enough. And that's how I met him at New York Comic Con when he was just releasing the first one. And we, I think we talked for like two straight hours. <laughs> Well, he's a great guy. And Tommy Hancock, our publisher, uh, is working with us on a whole bunch of other stuff. So we're having a, have a lot possibility coming on. But yeah, the purple zombie is one of those that I have a feeling you're going to like. Well, keep us posted. That sounds just the name itself has got my interest. And I know I don't really swim in zombie waters these days anymore, but, uh, neither do I. But this one, you know, if you're right, man, I, I gotta give it a chance. I gotta, I gotta give it a good look. See, in the meantime, though, I'm gonna go back and, and check out some of your other books and things. I'll probably go back and reread The Quest of Frankenstein again, which came out last year, which was on the Monster Kid Radio Holiday Gift Guide. Thank you again for that. Uh, do you have anything else coming up that listeners might keep an eye out for? Uh, yeah, I have a couple more coming. Um, I created a character very much of the uh, Dennis Wheatley hammer hard devil rides out kind of story. Yes. He, he's a British adventurer named Johnny Rich. And he is a nobleman of some kind, but he refuses to discuss it. He kind of blows it off every time. He is involved in these occult spy stories. And he's a expert on the occult, um, carries a sword cane, very much of the, uh, also like the Avengers in a way. And spe- since he's like the Avengers, I had to create a female counterpart. And his female counterpart is this incredibly beautiful, tall, Asian English woman named May. And when it first comes out, I did this very intentionally. May is dressed like a chauffeur, very beautiful wearing only the chauffeur's jacket and long and the boots and nothing else. And people are thinking she's the servant. And if you talk to Johnny for 10 seconds, you find out not only is she his partner, he considers her the smarter of the two. But the thing about May, she never speaks, but she says a lot you know, in her own way. And if you listen to Johnny, she never stops talking. But it's kind of a game I'm having fun with, writing a character who never speaks, but is clearly very much a partner or important part of the character and the stories there's two short stories coming out starring these two and they're very much a, a unique pairing set in the a kind of john le carré james bond even a little bit of the the world of the mysteries of the 60s and 70s as well and so i'm hoping that'll catch on so that's coming fairly soon i think uh, i think they're just working on the formatting so mm-hmm. let's hope for that and then i have for another pro uh, say 
I have a third Thunder Jim Wade story. I don't know if you ever read my first Thunder Jim Wade. Uh, There's another Thunder Jim Wade coming. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Horror of Hyperborea was my la- my first one. This one is a very Lovecraftian kind of story, very much based in um, a view of the Lovecraft that I try to change the way you think about it. I took this character, he's a Doc Savage knockoff, and made him like kind of a hero adventurer for ancient times. He only deals with like lost monsters from the past and evil men and evil races. And he ends up dealing with like a kind of uh, Aleister Crowley kind of character who suddenly develops real powers. Hmm. The reason this all happened, Thunder Jim Wade understands kind of hints of it. And it's pretty terrifying, at least I hope so. That's how it comes out. It's a very big adventure, a lot of action and a lot of dark stuff, you know, kind of uh, Lovecraft meets Indiana Jones, I guess you could say. So there's that. (laughs) Right on. Uh, Yeah, I hope so. It was a lot of fun uh, to write. It was strong stuff, though. And I'm working on the sequel to The Quest of Frankenstein for Black Coat Press. Um, and the title I think will interest you, but I'm not going to say about the story. It's called The Triumph of Frankenstein. Nice. Yeah. Okay. I'm interested. Yeah, I hope so. It was, I'm interested. <laughs> uh, uh, the Quest of Frankenstein was fun because when I brought it to Pulp Fest, it, I didn't even get to put it down on the table. People bought it right out of my hands. All the guys I know were like, oh, I've been wanting this. Give me a copy. And I had six copies, and they were gone before I even got to the – meteor house table where i'm always based and i didn't get to put anything down because it was all gone it was like i had to tell people it's like here's a here's a postcard for it but uh you know you got to buy it online (laughs) not a bad thing though it's an it's an interesting kind of balancing game being a writer having a full-time job being a writer and being a martial arts instructor so it's like I don't know when I sleep. See, you take that martial arts background and all this pulp knowledge and you get yourself a mask, right? And since you're not, you're, you have plenty of free time, you go out and you start fighting crime. That, that's, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm hoping for yeah. for you in the future. That would, that would be interesting. Five foot nine <laughs> inch, 50 year old fighting crime. I think I'd last about, a, a, about 15 seconds, you know? <laughs> you know, that, that's the whole thing with, uh, that I love about the Luchador movies is they, these guys will be captured by men with guns, but the minute the fight scene, is in the guys start using the guns as hammers. They forget, you know, if you pull the trigger, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> there is that level of uh, acceptance you have to have when you watch these movies that, uh, you know, you got to learn not to roll your eyes too much or else they'll fall out of your head. <laughs> <laughs> but we love them. We love them. Oh, and I love I, talking about them and um, having I you on the show. Man. And I might use it one day in a series of short stories called The Haunted Hangman. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it fits, doesn't it? I, I don't. I'm not ready to say anything about something I might be working on related to this. So, anyway, um. Hey, yeah. they're happy with it. They'll enjoy. A lot of, I know a couple of people who are coming up with stuff on that, and I hope all of you come up because it gives me something to read. Not that I have a lot of time for reading, but I try. Hey, you got to, I'd man. To read Luchador. Luchador, come on, give me more Luchador. That'd stuff. be amazing. Yes. Yes. But in the meantime, we'll watch the movies. And thanks again for being on Monster Kid Radio. And uh, we won't make you wait nearly as long for next time. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having it. And keep it up, man. I could never have enough. And uh, 
kept me through my drive times especially could be at my most bored. I'm having my most fun because I'm listening to Monster Kid Radio. Thanks. You're welcome. Frank has an Amazon author page. There's a link in the show notes, but if you just look up Frank Schildener on Amazon, you're going to find a listing for a number of his books. His last name is spelled S-C-H-I-L. D-I-N-E-R. Again, link in the show notes. Go check that out. He also mentioned Tommy Hancock a couple of times. Tommy Hancock is the man behind Pro Se Productions, which is one of the premier publishers of New Pulp. You can find them at prose-press.com. Prose is spelled like the word prose. So you can type that into your web browser and check that out and look at all the books they've got coming up over there. Not just from Frank, but a number of really cool New Pulp authors. He also mentioned Chuck a couple of times. I still need to get Chuck on the show, too, man. You know, the best thing about talking to Monster Kids about these kinds of movies, we get so excited. We just start going all over the place, talking about other topics, other subjects that are kind of sort of related, people that we know, what we grew up with. It's just fun to talk to fellow Monster Kids, and it was fun to talk to Frank. Frank, thank you for being part of Monster Kid Radio this week. They have never lived before as they live now. One man has already died, and the other was never born. Both exist in a world between life and death. Both long to be human. Neither can ever be. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Ten dead men's bodies were used to fashion Dr. Frankenstein's infamous creature. Tens of dozens of victims have kept Count Dracula alive. For three centuries, only one of these beings will survive their meeting. Dracula versus Frankenstein. Brand new thrills, brand new horror, brand new shock. Dracula versus Frankenstein, in color, rated GP. Nineteen eighty-seven marks the centennial of Boris Karloff's birth. Sony now brings you the last films Boris Karloff made prior to his death in The Karloff Collection, featuring two of his most terrifying performances yet. Any medical student could have seen that the eyes were torn from the body by nothing other than human fingers. The evil weed has sprung up again. In Alien Terror, Karloff as Professor John Mayer discovers a deadly laser-like force. But a strange visitor from another planet invades his mind, transforming him into an evil, unstoppable killer. I linger on like a sickness, a pestilence, killing every beautiful thing that I touch. Carlos' career has spanned five decades, and he has starred in over 150 box office thrillers. The legendary villain returns in the last two films of his career in The Karloff Collection. Okay, so this came up in the conversation with Frank, and I've been talking about it here on Monster Kid Radio for weeks. I mentioned it in the Monster Kid Radio Gazette e-newsletter. This month was going to be Lucha de Mayo, nothing but coverage of monster movies featuring Mexican wrestlers. I had a handful of movies lined up. I had a handful of guests lined up. And then real life got in the way. Now, last week's episode was a tribute to Vince Rotaldo, the man behind the B-movie cast. He unfortunately, unexpectedly passed away. And that really threw us all for a loop. And a lot of the scheduled plans that we all had had to change radically. And it's completely understandable. 
Juan Ortiz, who was a frequent co-host over at the B-Movie cast, was actually going to be one of the guests on this podcast this month to talk about a luchador monster movie. Well, he had other things on his mind, and I'm sure that I'm going to have Juan on the show in the future. It's going to happen. I also had Ken Blow scheduled to come on the show and talk about a Santo film. Again, with everything that happened with Vince in the B-Movie cast, it really kind of shook a lot of us up. So that had to be postponed as well. Ken is going to be on the show in the near future. We just have to reschedule. Juan's going to be on the show. Casey Criswell and I are still going to talk about that Mil Mascaris film, the one that was released in, I think, 2007. I'd have to double-check that. Still going to do some luchador films here on the show. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. Luchador monster movies, regardless of the release year, will always have a home here on Monster Kid Radio. We will be covering more luchador monster films here. Just because we're not talking about them the rest of this month doesn't mean I'm not going to give you a few titles or recommendations to check out. This was actually brought up on Facebook when I brought up that things were kind of changing schedule-wise. People wanted recommendations of some of these movies. Well, I have some. I'm going to use the English title for a lot of these movies just because that's the title that I can pronounce. One of the movies that Frank and I actually mentioned was a movie called The Champions of Justice. Now, this is not a monster movie per se. There is a mad scientist, but it really is a superhero movie. This is the movie that he described the opening for, where they're all riding on motorcycles going down the street. The opening credit sequence is awesome. We get a close-up of every wrestler on a motorcycle. We get the name of the person. It's just really cool. came out in 1970. The Champions of Justice starring Blue Demon, Mil Mascaris, and a handful of other luchadors. Now, Santo is not in that movie, but he is in a movie called Santo versus the Martian Invasion, which is actually a movie that I will be covering here with Ken in the future here on the show. This is something that I had a chance to see on the big screen a couple of years ago here in Portland. It feels like a luchador movie does Plan 9 from Outer Space, yet... It predates Plan 9 from Outer Space. This one is in black and white. Now, my own personal preference for these luchador films are the color films because they have a vibrancy and a feel to them. But that's not to say that I don't enjoy the black and white films, especially the black and white Santo films. So Santo versus the Martian Invasion is another one that I would recommend. And then, of course, The Mummies of Guanajuato. That's another one that Frank and I mentioned briefly. This one stars Blue Demon, Milmascaris, and then Santo shows up at the very end. Now, while they weren't necessarily wearing masks, some women got in on the action, too. I would also recommend a movie called Doctor of Doom. This involves two female wrestlers, luchadoras, facing off against a mad scientist. There is a follow-up to this film as well called Wrestling Women vs. the Aztec Mummy. It's also good. I don't find it as good as Doctor of Doom, but it's still good, still enjoyable, and I'd recommend those two films as well. Throughout the rest of the month, I'll mention a few other titles that I enjoy that I would recommend, so stay tuned. We received a voicemail from Stephen D. Sullivan. With everything that's happened with Vince and the B-Movie cast, a lot of us have reached out to Vince's wife, Mary Rotolo. She was a co-host of the B-Movie cast, and she really became friends with a lot of us. And a number of us have been reaching out to her and just making sure she's okay and helping out with what we can. Steve spoke with her and has a report right here. Hey there, Monster Kids and B-Movie cast fans that are tuning in after the last episode of Monster Kid Radio, which was a really, really wonderful and touching tribute to Vince Rotolo. This is Steve Sullivan, and I was just calling with a, a little bit of an update. I talked to Mary within the last couple of days, and she definitely wants to continue with the show, but it's worth noting that 
the hundreds of miles of wires and duct tape and all that kind of stuff. That That is apparently literally true. So there's a lot to figure out since Vince was the techie of the family and did all that stuff. And so she's going to have some, some friends and relatives come in and help her try to figure out exactly how the system worked and whether she can work with that system too. And Nick and Juan are also willing to continue the B-movie cast. But with that and with grieving and stuff, uh, fans should not expect that it's going to happen immediately, you know, probably not for months at the earliest. So it's just going to take some time. People need to be patient with it. She is very thankful for everyone's support. She doesn't have a Facebook page or presence, but she was able to get onto the site and read a lot of the condolences and messages, and it it really touched her, and uh, she really appreciated it. And at some point, she'll hear the radio, uh, Monster Kid Radio tribute to when she feels up to it, but it's, you know, it's really kind of hard because reading that kind of stuff brings up all the same emotions in the same way that listening to the show certainly brought up a tear to my eye as well. So you can only imagine what it's like for her. Anyway, I'll say thank you for her, even though she didn't say I should do that, but I will. Thank you to everyone for doing that. And I and Nick and Juan, uh, especially them, will try to keep you guys posted as to what's going on. And uh, know that we love you, and we're really proud of the Monster Kid family and the B-Radio, B-Movie Cast family. So thanks, guys. We'll talk to you soon, and uh, have a great week, and watch a B-Movie. This has been brought up on the B-Movie Cast Facebook page, but I'm going to say it here. There are so many podcasters that were involved in the B-Movie Cast community. If Nick, Juan, and Mary need any assistance from any of us, I'm sure I can speak for all of us podcasters and tech-friendly types, we'd certainly be willing to help out. If the show comes back, awesome. If they're not able to make it happen, that's fine too. Obviously, they've got more real-world things to worry about, and that's just fine. If there's anything that I can do to help guys and Mary... Please don't hesitate to ask. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank again Frank Schildener for being part of the show and being part of the Monster Kid Radio Irregulars. I really am a big fan of his work. I'm not just laying that on because he's been on the show a couple of times and he might be listening. I do enjoy his writing, so go check that out if you are of a new pulp mindset. And if you're not, why not? You're missing out. And I want to thank you guys and gals for listening and being part of the show just by tuning in. Now, if you want to be more involved, you can always find us on Facebook. I mentioned that earlier. We have a Facebook page that you can like, and we have a Facebook group that you can join and get involved with conversations with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio between or even while you're listening to episodes. We have links to our Facebook presence over at monsterkidradio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that's been brought up in this show, and you're going to find our contact information. Our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. We have an email set up at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You can email me an audio file, or you can just write up an email and send it in that way. Also at our website, you're going to find links to every single song that you hear here on Monster Kid Radio. And over on the right, there's a couple of things I'd like to draw your attention to. The Monster Rally Retro Awards is happening right now. What are the Retro Awards, or we call them the Rallies for short? Well, it's a way for us to honor the best in genre cinema. This time we're looking at the years 1932, 42, and 52. The ballot is live. It's open through June 
9th. So you have until then to get your votes cast. Also on our website over on the right is a place for you to put in your email address to get subscribed to the Monster Kid Radio Gazette and get yourself the monthly e-newsletter that I put out at the end of every month. What's in the e-newsletter? You're just going to have to subscribe to find out. And finally, the other thing that you can normally find on our website is what's coming up next week. Well, with all the schedule changes, I don't know what's coming up next week, but I can tell you that in the next few weeks, we've got Scott Morris coming back to talk about the next film in the Planet of the Apes series. We've got Michael Leggy, a.k.a. the horror host Dr. Drek. In talks to be here on the show. Rich Chamberlain and I are talking about bringing him back on the show. Dr. Gane Green, you know him as Larry Underwood. He's talking to me about coming back on the show. I've got a number of irons in the monster fire, so I'll keep everybody posted there and at monsterkidradio.net. Again, thanks to all the listeners. Thanks for all of your support. Thanks for your votes in the iTunes store if you are the iTunes persuasion. And thanks to the band, The Televisionaries. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song The Robber. That belongs to The Televisionaries. You can find them at televisionaries.bandcamp.com or playing at The Low Beat in Albany, New York on May 13th. However you find them, however you listen to them, however you support them, let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao.